Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Stepping into Isaiah 35, and our theme uh, this season of Advent is home. Uh, the feeling, uh, last week we, we sat with homesickness that ache in us for things to be put right. And uh, this week we, we, we're, we're looking at this thing through Isaiah, uh, who has a knack for kind of helping us to see our present moment, but also kind of down the road, uh, it just has a knack in, in, for talking about that ache in us and God's answer to that. And so this week we're, uh, we're, we're looking at Isaiah 35, and the, 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 the theme for this morning is kind of the way back home. Uh, I want to, at the risk of being a little too autobiographical this morning, which this won't be the only time, but uh, you know, it is what it is. So here we go. But my granddad, who is 94, uh, my granddad is moving out of the house that he has been in this week for 70 years, right? 70 years in a single, uh, a single home, which is a big deal. He's processing a lot. The family's processing a lot and, and chatting with uh, my mom and, and just about the family as they process the decision and my grandpa as well. But you know, just time for a change. 70 years. Maybe I'm looking for some new scenery, right? I don't know. Um, but, uh, it just, you know, obviously he's brought up sort of all sorts of kind of memories, right? Uh, nostalgia for lack of a better word. But one of those memories is that I spent every Christmas of my childhood and many of my adulthood in that house. Uh, we were chatting on Zoom and with a few folks in the room before service, the worship guys, about like if, if travel was a part of your Christmas experience. So we always took a trip from Georgia. It was like a seven-hour drive uh, up to my granddad's house. Cousins were there. We were there for Christmas generally. Like, I mean, it, it was just a, 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 you could count on it, bank on it every, I remember uh, the parents driving through snow, which was infrequent in North Carolina to retrieve cousins three hours away so they could get to the grandparents' house, right? Like, uh, for Christmas. I mean, it was, it was a serious part of, uh, really this sort of, uh, uh, ache for good things, right? Joy, this, this, this regular marker of, of good in, in my life. Uh, but I remember we would make that drive from Georgia again, seven or so hours, I think. Uh, but we'd hit, we'd hit a particular kind of series of landmarks and they were billboards, uh, that, that told us we were, we were close. Right. We, you know, we, maybe we were excited at the beginning, all the excitement. Then you, you know, three, four hours in, you're like, you know, as a kid, you know, when are we there? Are we almost there? When are we there? But then we'd hit these series of billboards, uh, kind of marking this particular landmark that, that told us we had, we had sort of crested the hill and we were, we were almost there. Uh, a marker, if you will, of, of, uh, we were, we were nearly home, right? We were, we were almost there. And my, my suggestion to you this morning, regardless of age or experience, is that, is that I think I would suggest we're all kind of looking for, uh, those kinds of markers, signs of life, if, if you will, indications that we're headed in the right direction, specifically that we are at least nearing the place where the, the ache for all that is broken, uh, gets put right. Like that we're, we're looking for, for indications that, that we are at least headed in the direction where those, those things in us that oftentimes we don't want to talk about, those broken places in us will find uh, healing. Home uh, is the word we're using this season. Uh, Madeline Lingle, who uh, has written so many wonderful things, some of them familiar, uh, uh, perhaps a wrinkle in time is something familiar to you, but, but she described it like this, that we're all strangers, 
all strangers in a strange land longing for home, but not quite knowing what or where home is. And I think she, she taps into that, that ache in us for things to be put right, but that longing to, to kind of see signs, markers, billboards that we are, uh, in a sense, moving, uh, closer to home. And I, I want to suggest to you that our reading this morning, Isaiah 35, as he does over and over again, Isaiah is really good at, at, uh, at giving us those signs. That, that, it, that he is good at kind of pulling back the curtain just a little bit. He's talking, really good at helping us see the present moment, but just to see down the road a little bit. Uh, perhaps I, I would say to you that in our reading this morning, giving us, in a sense, billboards, markers of, of the way home. Uh, it's a poem, right? It's a beautiful poem. It's, it's why we read all 10 verses. Uh, it's actually one of a set of poems. The previous chapter, chapter 34, is also a poem, and, and they really they kind of come together, but I thought 10 verses was enough for us to kind of read in one sitting, so we, we, didn't, we didn't read uh, all that came before, although we'll reference it. But, but I think this, we'll kind of look at each stanza in its turn, but I, I want to suggest to us kind of right off the bat that Isaiah gives us the clearest sign of life. The clearest billboard or indicator that, that, uh, that this is what it will be like to find and make our way home. And it's the promise of joy. It hits us right off the bat. There, there is immediately that uh, an indication, a sign of, of our sort of journey home is, is this promise and experience of, of joy. The imagery in verses one and two, uh, are life in the desert. Right, this imagery of, of the desert just exploding, uh, with life. But here I think the context is really helpful because chapter 34, this other poem, uh, th- these are the images in, in that poem. Thorns, thistles, nettles, tar and pitch, sulfur, jackals sort of running wild. It's this picture of creation, uh, being, uh, broken, barren. Creation, not kind of living into or up to what it was designed and, and created to be. And not just creation. So in chapter 34, this sort of dark, sad picture of the state of things, it's also in Isaiah's writing and kind of an indictment against just this is where human ability on its own will leave you. Uh, in the story of Isaiah, it's a story of the, the people of Israel. He's writing to this small country who is, they are in a sense a pawn on this grand geopolitical struggle, right? The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, they're they're this small group of people, weak and powerless and and looking for anywhere to anchor their trust. And the Old Testament's a story of their attempt to anchor that trust in the nations around them again and again. And in Isaiah 34, with nestles, not nestles, with, with thistles and thorns and, and nettles, Isaiah gives us a, a picture that, that all of that human ability and anchoring our trust in all of those things inevitably leads to barrenness. But then out of the blue, with no introduction, no sort of lead in, we get verse one in our reading, in the wilderness and desert, uh, even the wilderness and desert will be glad. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with crocuses. There will be abundance of flowers and singing and joy. I mean, it's abrupt and sudden uh, and full of, of life that right from the start of our reading this morning, we're confronted with the reality, the promise, uh, the sign of life, Isaiah says, will be joy. 
will be life being brought from things that are dead and barren and empty. There will be, there will be joy. There, there will be life. This is where he starts. In creation, it's this beautiful creation imagery. But he takes a turn uh, in, the next, in the next stanza, verses 3 through 7. Uh, he moves, right? He, he turns sort of from the cosmic kind of creation scale. Creation will spring to life uh, to the personal. He says, this joy will be fleshed out in real human experience, right? That, 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 uh, that, that ache in us for things to be put right, an indication of, of that resolution that we're on the way there is joy, is, is life springing from things that are dead. And, and, and here he turns, he says, not just like the world, it's, it's in human experience. Listen to the language of these three uh, or four verses. The images, tired hands, weak knees, fearful hearts, Blind eyes, deaf ears, crippled legs, silent mouths. This is very fleshy, right? Isaiah says there, there will be this shift, this change, that on this way, all of these ex- broken experiences of the human condition will find healing. There, there is a promise of joy, right, uh, that is so abruptly introduced in verse 1. Joy, the desert will spring to life. It's, it's about creation, yes, but, but all of that creation language now finds its expression in the human condition, in our experience of, of life. It's this beautiful picture of, of uh, joy finding its um, feet, if you will, in our lived experience. And this is where he, he, he uh, stays for just a few moments in this passage. We'll return to this imagery, but, but he turns one more time in the final stanza. This is just a, we're, we'll call this like a, a flyover, right? We're just kind of the zoomed out lens of Isaiah 35. He tells us in the last stanza, he picks up a different image. There's, there's the promise of life. The way home is associated with joy, uh, springing to life where things have been dead. That joy will find expression in our lives. And he says then in this last stanza that to walk this road, this way, to experience this joy is, is to be on the way home, is to be making our way back home. Verses 8 through 10 sort of paint this, this image of a highway in the desert. It's an image Isaiah will use again. It's an image that shows up in the Christmas story about John the Baptist. Make, make a way and prepare the way in the desert. This imagery of, of through spaces that are dead and broken, God opening up a highway, an easily traveled journey through a barren wasteland. That, that to experience this joy is to make our way back home. Uh, the imagery here is an image of exile. I, as Isaiah is, is writing to a people that, that, again, under the thumb of all these political powers that they've trusted, they've, they've been uh, driven from their home. And he sees here in this moment a return, uh, a, a move from kind of wandering around in the desert to finding their way back home. There's already been Exodus imagery. All this creation language of water in the desert for Isaiah's audience would have called to mind like all of these uh, pictures of their kind of history of being led out of Egypt and God taking care of them in desert, dry, barren places. And now he tells them it won't just be God bringing life where there is emptiness, dryness. It will be God bringing us home. 
right? It will be a, a, a homecoming that, that, that what Isaiah is describing here is, 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 is the way back home. The joy that we experience as God brings life will be an indication of, of, of our kind of, uh, journey on this road. I, I want to just invite you to consider again, not, we are leaving, uh, some details, certainly not doing all of the details justice, but just think about some of the images here. He, he, he tells us that the road will be narrow, right? It's a holy way, he calls it. This is language Jesus will pick up. Like, uh, it, it's a narrow way, but, but it's not a dangerous way, right? To say that it's narrow, I think sometimes we think narrow, what we hear is like a road full of potholes, that you can get on it, but then you got to be really careful how you walk, right? It's just full of rumble strips and, and unexpected kind of detours and, and, and pit, pit potholes, pitfalls, right? That, but what, what he describes here is nothing like that. Yes, it's narrow, but it is safe and easily traveled. Uh, he, he gives us an image, it's not dangerous, right? He gives us an image kind of further into that, that where previously in the poem, fear was running amok. What, well, that gives way here that life on, on this road home is, is full of security, right? Safety, where there had been fear, the imagery here of desert animals, jackals and lions, and the threat of insecurity, right? That, that well, the, the road home here, the, the joy that God gives is marked with, with security replacing fear, or the imagery of wandering, that, that we kind of wander through the desert trying to find our own way as exiles. Here the image is, no, it's an easily traveled road home, a way of returning. And the language here is they'll return to Zion, this, this picture for the people to whom he's writing, that they would find their way home. And then the beautiful image, one of the reasons this passage of Scripture is some of my favorite in, in, in Scripture. He tells us in that final moment that grief that life on this path doesn't deny grief, but says that grief will give way to joy. We're back where we started. Joy kind of bursting into spaces where all there is is grief and, and brokenness. And I'm, I'm going to guess as a best effort judging through your masks, which make facial expressions as a public communicator very difficult to read, right? Uh, but I'm going to, I'll just assume, I'm going to place a question on your lips or in your mind. Well, this is great. What does any of this have to do with me, right? I love these images, right? This is great, Lebanon and all that. But uh, here in scripture, a highway, great, jackals, not a daily threat in my life on my commute to work. Uh, what, what, what does this mean for me? Well, I want to suggest to you as we sort of move towards stepping into this uh, image ourselves, I, I want to suggest to you that the turn in this poem is back at verse four. That, that, uh, that, that, that what makes the difference in all of this, the difference between chapter 34, which we didn't read, and, and jackals and, and thistles and all that, and the life that we find in, in chapter 35, the difference between wandering around dead in a wilderness, barren and empty, and instead finding ourselves on a path of life and joy, the difference is in verse four when he says, your God comes to you. Your God, he says, comes to you. And as we, we heard loosely in our kind of lighting of the candle, that coming is, is, is not always easy. It, it is a light that exposes. 
It reveals, even as it does in this passage, weakness and fear and brokenness and, and tired hands and weak knees. It, and the language here is vengeance and judgment. There, there is in that experience of his coming a, a, a just sometimes difficult to accept honesty about our condition. And yet he holds it out here as, as the difference in our lives and our world that moves us from wandering in the desert to finding our way home. Your God, he says, comes to you. I, I would uh, like maybe just to draw your attention to a moment in Jesus's life when this verse and this image uh, pops up again. So John the Baptist, the story, he comes before Jesus. He's a part of the Advent Christmas celebration. He's a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus. He's, he's calling on people to turn and repent. He's kind of crazy in, you know, like just, he's a, an eccentric figure in scripture. And he's announcing Jesus. He's a part of helping people see this is the guy. Uh, but in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, a little bit further into John's story, hey, well, we find him, we find him in, <laughs> We find him in prison. Sorry, that was a reflexive response. Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, we, we find John in, in prison. And uh, in a sense, really, I think, if we're honest, we, we find him in prison at a point later in his life. We find him with tired hands, weak knees, and certainly a fearful, doubting heart. He's, he's, he's wrestling with, with his experience of Jesus. And, and he, he, he calls his disciples from prison and, and sends them to Jesus to ask them this question, to ask Jesus this question, are you the one who is to come? And in that question, the language of Isaiah 35, your God comes to you. And John, in this moment with a fearful heart, asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And then these, these I feel like, really sad words, uh, but ones that we know, or should we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus, in this moment, tells John, tells his disciples, go back and tell John, look at the people around me. Right? He, he says, look, look, look at what's happening around me. And the language he uses to describe that is Isaiah 35. Lame or walking, deaf or hearing, people are seeing where there has been grief and judgment and condemnation. Now there is joy and life, much like the image from Isaiah of desert springing to life. Jesus tells John, look at the people around me and what you will see are deserts springing back to life. Your God comes to you. Right? This, is the, this is the hope of the gospel. It's the message of Advent, wherever you are in your life or mine, uh, that, that God, the point Isaiah 35 makes in, in this moment is that what makes all of the difference in creation and in the human experience is the presence of God with us, with you. So I, I want to suggest to you this morning that his presence, his presence speaks to all of those uh, expressions of the human heart that we find in Isaiah. For example, weakness. He talks about, he's writing to people who, uh, the weak and tired hands, people who have come to the end of themselves. They don't have anything left. They, they just can't make it work anymore. And, and the coming of God speaks, he says, even in your experience to that weakness. I was reading an interview this week 
uh, with, uh, his name is, uh, let me get it right, Jason Webster. And he's a former NFL player, spent some time with the 49ers and now, and then with the Falcons. He's now retired and is a chaplain, uh, with the Atlanta Falcons. And he was a cornerback, uh, turned chaplain. And over the course of this interview, the interviewer is asking him questions about his faith. And he, uh, he's, he's, talking about the pressure in the NFL to perform, right? That every aspect of his career has a number, has a quantifiable, measurable piece of data, and that anywhere uh, that, that you don't sort of measure up to that, well, it's clearly there for everyone to see, and, and your performance then, uh, <laughs> if you can't measure up, like the, the, it's a short line to failure, uh, invisible failure. And he says what happens, he described that, that weight, this is before faith maybe had come to life in his heart, that that, that sort of emphasis on his performance just begins to seep into the human heart and soul. And that, and that began to translate to other areas of his life and talks about his experience that that, that same, right, then what he found to be true, even across his relationships in the NFL, that if I perform well on the field, if, if I'm kind of measuring up to all these stats, that translated, I'm a success. But if I fumble or drop a pass, miss a tackle, cost my team a game, I'm a failure. There's no middle ground. And that just begins to seep into who I am. He talked about a, a moment, one of the teams he played for in the training facility, there was a locker room. And over the top of that locker room, there was uh, a message that said, durability is more important than ability. Right? Durability is more important than ability. And, and Jason Webster talked about the feeling he had that he, he tried to avoid that locker room in a career that had been plagued by injury uh, in a moment when he wanted to be durable to prove that sort of he could measure up and achieve this dream he had reached that he could maintain it yet he he knew right that he could not live up uh, he had not been uh, durable it was something he said that I was expected to attain on my own and I was reluctant to enter through that door he says of course I wanted to be known as durable dependable a success and not a liability. And you're asking again, that's great. I don't play in the NFL. Maybe you do. I don't want to make any assumptions, right? But maybe you do. But maybe, uh, maybe this is not your experience. But I will bet, I will bet uh, that all of you, all of us are carrying around our own stat sheet. Right, we've all, we've all, we've all got a stat sheet that says, if I can just sort of achieve these marks in this space, I'll be okay. Right? I'll, I'll prove that I'm not a liability, that I'm durable. Maybe, maybe for you, it's motherhood or fatherhood, right? It's, it's the balance of career and marriage and parenting and, uh, the stats you've built around that. And, uh, you're like, if I'm just well enough and kind of, if I can do all of this just well enough, I will not be a liability to my children or my spouse or my coworkers. And so this, the, the pressure to perform, uh, sits there. Maybe it's as a parent with grown children. It's questions like, man, did I do enough? Right? Maybe it's a career. You're planning and plotting steps and all of that perhaps in these last few months has been called into question and, and you're wondering sort of, well, well, what is my contribution or what does it look like for me to, to not be a liability? Man, maybe your stat sheet is defined by a history or things completely outside of your control. And your sort of experience of that pressure is one that says, if I could just do enough to be different than the way it used to be for me or for others that I knew, if I could just, 
And in the midst of that, what we hear and see is human weakness. That we are on our own, never durable enough. But right into the middle of all of that, we hear the promise of Isaiah 35. God comes to you. Your God comes to you. Unlike the NFL, Jason goes on to say, talking about his faith and how he came to discover God's grace. He says, we don't have to earn a spot on God's roster. We couldn't make it and we're not deserving of it. We, would, we will never measure up though. It's a holy way, as Isaiah says, right? But God's goodness, grace, and love through Jesus, through God coming to you, has made us his children, he said. We are not what we do. We are so much more. And maybe, maybe you need to hear this promise. Your God has come to you in the middle of whatever weakness you have brought into this room. But maybe, right, Isaiah talks about other experiences, and one of them is fear. He tells him, don't be afraid. Your God comes, right? I, I was reading, uh, we've been reading, I've shared this before, we've been reading a book, uh, The Mysterious Benedict Society, to my, my girls, who are eight. And uh, if you're familiar with it, it's been a lot of fun, right? It was a jump for us, kind of a, kind of a big book. Uh, a new, it was a new experience for us. We were kind of, my wife and I, just we were alternating who we, we would each read a different book. And when they finished the book, then we switch. And this was my turn. And she handed me like a 500 page book. And I said, I see what's happening here, right? Like, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm wise to this game. Uh, but we were reading this week and, uh, this a plot point. I don't want to give too much away. No spoilers here, but uh, a premise in the book is that the villain was playing upon the fears of, uh, of some of the central characters, manipulating them. Uh, and so it was, but it was the kids in, in this story were talking about what they were afraid of. And I was reading, you know, we were, I mean, I am totally into it. Like I'm joking. I, it was really, I, I'm enjoying it, right? We're almost done. It's been really fun, but I'm reading this sort of section on fear and out of the blue, uh, my kids, they kind of surprised me. Like they interrupted the reading and a lot of times I'll get annoyed. I'll be like, are you, do you guys want me to read or not? Please stop talking. This is really good. Let me keep reading. Right? Uh, and this was one of those moments, right? They like, they spoke up and just started saying things that they were afraid of. Well, I'm afraid of, right? I, I'm, I'm afraid of. Uh, and I was, I was not prepared. Um, again, at the risk of being too autobiographical, uh, I was not prepared for that conversation. I don't suppose you ever are as, as, as a parent. Uh, you know, I got the usual stuff like the dark and spiders. You know, they were top of the list. Great. I said, yeah, me too. But then one of them said, uh, I'm afraid of being the last one to fall asleep at night. And what I heard was, I don't want to be alone. I'm afraid of being alone. And my other one, I don't know. I don't think they were listening to each other. She's like, yeah, uh, it was some variation of, uh, of being apart from you. You and mommy, my sister. What I heard again was, I don't want to be alone. And uh, again, right, I was not prepared to sort of engage. I tried. I'd like to tell you. I put on my best pastoral voice, you know, Park City Sundays. and was like, well, let me tell you. You don't have to be afraid. God is with you alone, right? I feel like it's a word that for so many people, particularly over the last six or eight months, has has come to life in painful ways that people have probably thought they would never have to experience. But here's what Isaiah tells me, that in the midst of that, that in the midst of all of that fear, your God comes to you. He comes to you. And maybe, maybe it's not weakness or fear. He lands with this beautiful image of grief. Maybe yours is grief. I heard someone describe grief like this this week. Grief is love with nowhere to go. 
Got all this love, but, but the object of that affection is no longer present and able to receive it. And grief in this moment is love with nowhere to go. And Isaiah tells us that one of the beauties of the Christian faith is that there is always, there is always a source, a, a goal, an object of, of that love. In fact, Isaiah will tell us just a few chapters later, as we think about grief, and a description that will come to be attached to Jesus, right? And a description uh, that, that people in Jesus's lifetime, having experienced the kind of person he was, looking for a way to talk about him, will go back to this passage in Isaiah and be like, I see Jesus here. And this is what Isaiah says. He will be a man despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our grief and our sorrow. And I hear in that promise that in this moment, whatever your experience of grief may be, your God comes to you. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news of the Christian faith, right? That all we bring to the table, all that we bring to the table, all that we bring to the table is tired hands and weak knees, and fearful, doubt-ridden hearts. That's it. We are, as Isaiah said, fools on the way. On our own, we are fools on the way. And yet, your God comes to you. What I think is so powerful about the truth this morning as we close is that he doesn't come to show you the way. In this passage, he doesn't come to show us the way. He is the way. He comes as the way. Jesus will say himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way back home, right? Uh, the way is his work. He doesn't, although he does come and say, obviously, follow me, but it's not saying like you got to measure up to this. He says, follow me as I do this work for you. The work is his, not yours. Even fools, Isaiah says, will stumble. The road will be so smooth and free of potholes. Narrow, yes, but so smooth because he has done the work. He has done the work. Maybe you're here with the feeling of God seems so far away. For so many of us, he's just sort of like one ladder rung higher. If I just sort of improve the stat sheet this little bit more, if I could just get things a little bit more under control, I can't tell you as a pastor how many conversations I have with people and, and in, our, in our struggles with sin, right? If I, could just, if I could just improve the stat sheet a little bit more, well then, but I can't reach him. But the message this morning is you don't have to. The gospel, the gospel, the Christian faith, unique about the Christian faith, the message of Jesus is that we don't have to find our way to God. He finds his way to you. And he has found his way to us. That's why I love this passage. It takes, it takes uh, the grand brokenness of creation and lays it alongside the brokenness of my own heart and life. And into the middle of all of that extends a, an offer of hope. Your God comes to you. And where that leads... Where that leads is where we started. Joy. What is in this passage isn't always a byproduct. Not something we create, not something we manufacture, work it up. If, if you were doing that, it's not real joy. Joy in scripture is always a byproduct of the presence of God in his world and in your life and mine.
that when he walks in the desert of the human heart, right, your heart and mine, the result is that it comes to life, that he comes to us. We don't find our way to him. He finds his way to you. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.